Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 14. But before we read the text, would you, follow, would you pray with me? Father, we come now to your word, and as we open it up, we ask God that you would give us insight. Lord, we pray that you would anoint our ears to hear, our minds to comprehend, and our hearts to love the truth of your word, so much so that you would apply the truth of your word in ways that me as a preacher that I can't even begin to speak to. I pray, God, that your word would take root deeply in our lives. And if there is anyone this morning who struggles with such sin in their life, I pray, God, that you would bring them to the place of repentance. But I pray, God, that you would unify your church in our mission to make disciples of all nations, to be the light of Christ in the midst of darkness. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that the words of my mouth this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to follow along in verse 3. If you found your place, say amen. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It was the year 1780. And at 21 years of age, William Wilberforce was elected a member of Parliament in England. And over the next six years, he learned his way around Parliament. But on Easter of 1786, things changed for Wilberforce. After surrendering his life to Christ, he sought counsel of others regarding his vocation. He became convinced of the emptiness of wealth and the the truthfulness of Christianity. And in his journal, he wrote, I was filled with sorrow. I'm sure that no human creature could suffer more than I did for some months. He considered withdrawing from public life for the sake of his faith. He consulted friends. And with 10,000 doubts, he approached John Newton, the aging saint. And the aging saint advised him, It is hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of his church and for the good of this nation. His sense of vocation began growing within, and he wrote in his journal, My walk is a public one. 
my business is in the world, and I must mix in the assemblies of men, or quit the post which providence seems to have assigned me. He also increasingly felt the burden of his calling. He later wrote, A man who acts from the principles I profess reflects that he is to give an account of his political conduct at the judgment seat of Christ. On October 28, 1787, he recorded in his journal with extraordinary clarity, through the fruit of prolonged study, prayer, and conversation, he realized the need for some reformer of the nation's morals who should raise his voice in the high places of the land. And he summed up what became his life mission in this way. God Almighty has set before me two great objects. The suppression of the slave trade with the Reformation and the Reformation of morality. For the next 47 years, William Wilberforce became the leading advocate for the abolition of slavery. He wrote, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the trade's wickedness appear that to my mind was completely made up uh, to that. My own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I from this time determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. Wilberforce's spirit was indomitable. His enthusiasm palpable. As a slave owner's agent in Jamaica wrote, it is necessary to watch him as he is blessed with the very sufficient quantity of that enthusiastic spirit which is so far from yielding that it grows more vigorous with every blow. Where did this conviction to lead come from for Wilberforce? I'll tell you where it came from. He wrote in his diary, in the scripture, no national crime is condemned so frequently and few so strongly as oppression and cruelty. And not using our best endeavors to deliver our fellow creatures from them would be a mistake. On July 26, 1833, the Emancipation Bill was finally passed by the House of Commons. Three days later, Wilberforce died. Here's a man who gave his life to the cause of Christ and saw his vocation as one in the same with the Christian calling. William Wilberforce was a missionary living in a pagan land. Brothers and sisters, we must do the same. There are two battlefronts for every believer. The first is the inner man and the second is the world. And victory in the perpetual battle of the first must be decided in Christ before we can ever engage in the second in the world. So this morning, I want us to see the conduct of our lives matters before holy God and shines as a testimony of light in a dark world. Paul's concern for the witness of the church runs throughout the entire epistle. He continually exhorts the church, believers, the, the new, those who are new creations in Christ, to walk according to God's ways. We see it in chapter 2, verse 2, this theme of, of walk. It, it runs throughout his work. He says in chapter 2, in which you once walked, making a contrast between the old way and the new way. We see it in chapter 2, verse 10, where he exhorts the church, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should what? 
walk in them. We see it in chapter 4, verse 1, where he exhorts the church. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We see it in verse 17. This now, I, now this I say in testifying the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We see it in chapter 5, verse 2, where we looked last week that we would walk in love as Christ himself gave himself up for us. We see it in verse 8 of chapter 5. Walk as children of light. We see it in verse 15 of chapter 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. You see, Paul's concern is that true conversion in the gospel produces transformation in believers' lives so that we live differently from the world. From verse 17 of chapter 4 through through verse 14 of chapter 5, Paul exhorts the church to leave behind the pagan behavior of the world. He categorizes the old life as being full of sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, darkened in our understanding. Chapter 4, verse 18, and filled with sexual immorality. Chapter 5, verses 3 and 5. So this morning, as we approach this text, verse 8 is the hinge verse for the entire text. And particularly that last phrase in verse 8, that command where he says, walk as children of light. And so this morning, I want us to see first that we as a church, we as believers, new creations in Christ, are called to walk as children of light. So the first question we pose is, how then do we walk as children of light? And I want us to see in verses 3 through 7, I think he gives us four ways that we are to walk as children of light. First, it is to guard our actions. We see this in verse 3. And this is the point that we've already noted. We, as believers, must live differently. We must live differently from the culture. It's no surprise that Paul hones in on the sin of sexual immorality. Ephesus was the cultural center of Asia. Sexual immorality was rampant in the pagan world of Paul's day. Many people moved through the city and participated in the worship of Diana and temple prostitution in the temple of Artemis. It was said that the city of Ephesus probably had 200 to 250,000 people living in it. And then people coming through this port city continually would have drawn large numbers and would have spread this false worship far and wide. So Ephesus had in it the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, where temple prostitution was prolific. It was the driver of the immoral culture of the day. But as immoral as the culture of Ephesus was, hear this out, I believe that today's American culture would make the culture of Ephesus blush. We read in the early accounts of Paul's missionary work in Ephesus, we read it in Acts chapter 19, where a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made shrines for Artemis, was losing business. And since he was losing business, he gets together the trade guilds, he gets together the, uh, the, the, the workers' union of the day, and he begins to incite riots within the city. Now what had just happened was all of the people who had been converted to Christ and had been transformed by the gospel had begun taking all of their shrines, all of their books, witchcraft, and practicing sorcery, and they threw them in the fire, and they were burning them. 
And in chapter 19, verse 26 of Acts, it says, and you see, Demetrius says, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. There is danger, not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. We see then, we see now, the tentacles of sin are far-reaching. The industries that support sexual immorality in our country have great power and great lobbying power, we see that the tentacles of sin even today are far reaching. And so in this text, here's what Paul's doing. Paul's doing cultural exegesis. He's calling God's people to live in a way consistent with God's biblical sexual ethic, which is in direct contrast with the pagan culture that they live in. And this is still the challenge for us today, church, to be in direct contrast with the culture that we live in. And so in verse 3, he begins by, by citing three vices, all of them having fornication in view. The first one is sexual immorality. It's, it's the word pornea in the Greek text, and it's where we get our English word for pornography. It includes adultery. It includes premarital sex, that which has become the way and the, the normal means of our culture if people get married. Homosexuality, we see it with the LGBT agenda, prostitution, and a host of other forms of perversion. All of this is included in sexual immorality that he's speaking about here. We're all aware of how sin, these sins, drive our culture and the flagrancy of of sexual immorality is flaunted throughout the film industry, throughout social media, media, throughout advertising, over the internet. We see this running rampant in our culture. And what we need to recognize is that Satan has taken what is good. He has taken a good gift from God and he has turned it into perverse sin. So sexual immorality, impurity, he says, this is the word for uncleanness and it it speaks to unrestrained sensual behavior, covetousness. It, It speaks of greed. It's the insatiable desire to have more for one's own satisfaction, making other people just the object of our own consumption. The Ten Commandments instruct us regarding the sin of coveting, Exodus twenty seventeen. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, and so on. Paul says these things are not even proper to be named among the saints. The word for saints is a word where we get we get the word holy. That's the exact word that saints is translated from. Holy. When we look at the Holy Spirit, it's a hagios pneumatas. And here, the saints are called the hagios. We are the holy ones of God. We're God's holy people and we're called out. And what Paul's saying here is we must guard our lives against any hint or form of sexual immorality. And the reason is because the new life in Christ, the new creations that we've become, these ways ought to be foreign to us. For young students, for college students, for singles... I exhort you, as Paul does, you must guard your purity. Husbands and wives, you must guard your purity. This is why being involved in the body of Christ and having accountability in dating relationships is is of great significance. 
Husbands and wives, as you travel on business trips and and are in hotel rooms where no one sees you, it's of great significance that you take steps to guard your purity. This is eternally significant. Find ways to do that. Parents, as as our children grow up in this media-saturated age, it's imperative that we would guard them from the devices that they hold in their hands. Placing restrictions. It's imperative that we, we guard our own eyes. These vices are not even to be named among you, he says. Because even thinking and talking about such things creates an atmosphere of toleration. And this toleration can lead to promotion and even to practice. And, and the lifestyle of believers, he's saying, is, is it must match our holy calling. Well, not only must we guard our actions, we must guard our speech. The things we say have great importance and they have great bearing on our testimony to a world that's watching. They have great bearing on our actions as well. Paul knows this, and so he admonishes believers against conversation and communication filled with filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. Filthiness is that which is obscene and shameful in speech. It's wickedness and it, it's indecent conversation and foolish talk. It, it's a compound word from where we get the word moron and where we get the word logic. And so it's moronic logic. as well. It's stupidity, right? That's what he's saying. This is foolish talk. It's crude joking, referring to witty and impure, vulgar comments. We've all been around those people. Perhaps we've even been those people. But here what Paul is saying, he's saying that is to have no place among the saints of God. These all breed an atmosphere of contempt for that which is good and right and true. The fruit of light that we'll see in a moment in verse 9. The words we speak can defame and callously treat others as objects of our own selfish pleasure. And so Paul says this speech is actually of darkness. And it's not fitting for children of light. So we must guard our actions. We must guard our speech. And the way that we battle against such reckless speech is that we guard our attitudes. Look in verse 4, the second part of verse 4. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Instead of acting and speaking in such immoral ways, he says, live with thanksgiving. Well, how in the world does living with thanksgiving counter the immoral vices of verses 3 through 4? Thanksgiving is the fundamental Christian response to God's salvation of us in Christ. And it's the distinctive mark of Christian speech. Thanksgiving is the right response of all people who have been filled by the Holy Spirit of God. Because in 1 Timothy, I mean 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul tells us, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so thanksgiving then reflects dependence on God. It recognizes something about God and about us. It recognizes that God is the one who has taken initiative in our salvation. And it endears a biblical mindset for believers by focusing on the redemptive work of Christ in reconciling the world to himself. But secondly, thanksgiving also recognizes That God is the source of all blessing. By focusing our minds on God and others in a pure manner, thanksgiving then is an expression of unselfishness. It's the exact opposite of the worldly, self-satisfying sensuality and speech that is seen in foolish talk and crude joking and obscene 
language, filthiness. So instead of using others, we're to serve others. Instead of trying to turn the innocent into the immoral, we seek to we seek by God's grace to transform the immoral into that which is righteous and holy. Because the holy life is a satisfying life. Hear what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, or Colossians chapter 3, rather, verses 1 through 6. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Get this, verse 2. Set your minds on the things above, right? Not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's the assurance. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And get the vices. Sexual immorality, right? Impurity. Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. See this in verse 6. There's one other area of thanksgiving that thanksgiving teaches us and thanksgiving helps us and teaches us to respond to the grace of Christ so that we live out of joyful thanksgiving. This reflects the the Christian attitude of, of biblical sexual ethic, which is opposite from the world, a thankfulness for the good gift that God has given us as his creation. You see, thanksgiving is actually a response of concern for the needs of others. So how do we counter these vices of verses 3 and 4? He says, be be thankful. Have an attitude of thanksgiving. But not only are we to guard our actions, our speech, and our attitudes, we must also guard our salvation. We see this in verses 5 through 7. These are severe words of warning that Paul lays out before the church. Verses 5 and 6 are severe. You may be sure of this, he says. The point that he's making is those who persistently live in immorality will be excluded from the kingdom of Christ and God. And they will suffer the wrath of God. Let that sink in for a moment. Paul's not saying that a believer can lose his or her salvation. Jesus said to his sheep in John 10, 28, I I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. But you see what Paul is saying here is that if a professing believer finds himself, finds herself in persistent immoral failure, here's what happens. They forfeit the assurance of their salvation. So in verse 5 he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Listen, he's talking to the church. He's telling the church, guard your life. Don't allow the cultural influence around you to cause you to become partners with them, as he says in verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. In verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words that you would embrace and accept This immoral way, this is a pagan way. These empty words that we hear today go like this. God is too kind to condemn to hell those whose behavior doesn't measure up. Love will prevail. God is sympathetic with our frail human nature. God created me this way and he doesn't want me to be unhappy. 
These are all lies that distort the truth of God's word. Church, we must not be swayed by the empty words and cultural permissiveness and acceptance and celebration of the sinner's sensual ways. Don't be enticed by sinners, as he says in verse 6, the sons and daughters of disobedience. Rather, we must stand firm on the truth of God's word. God's truth is assaulted today from the cultural acceptance of adultery to the LGBT agenda to cohabitation as a way of life. It's seen from the White House, from the public offices in the land to college campuses and everywhere else in between, even on our local school campuses. The warning to the church is to exegete our culture and to walk as children of light in the midst of darkness. We're not called to leave the world. We're not called to not interact with the world. But we are called to, as 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? You see, church, the call of the gospel is clear. The immoral way of living so dominant in the world must not gain any footing in the Christian life, in the church. For we once were sons of disobedience, but we no longer gratify the cravings of the sinful flesh. There are many denominations today who call themselves Christian, who have openly even embraced homosexual clergy in their midst. This is a sin that I'm quite confident the church will answer for. But church, how do we respond in the midst of this pagan immorality that is in our land? Well, we walk as children of light. We guard our actions. We guard our speech. We guard our attitudes. And we guard our salvation. And as we do this, we solidify the inner battle that every believer fights. Every believer is learning to walk as children of light. And once we do that, the the outward battle is the second front. And Paul challenges us to this as well. He challenges us to shine as children of light. He challenges us to missional living in a pagan world. The light of Christ in us is a beacon for the darkness around us. The missional calling of the church is to shine the light of Christ in the darkness. And in Paul's mind, there's no other option for the church. To be the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones means that we will be called out of darkness into light, and then we will shine this light into the midst of the culture, the society, into the world, among the nations in which we live. And so first I want you to note, first sub-point and the second point, our lives will produce the fruit of light. There's no backing off here for Paul. In verses 8 through 10, he he highlights this. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The fruit of light is seen in verse 9. Look there where he says, The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. There's no greater imagery for contrasting our life before the gospel of Christ transformed us. We represent the kingdom of light. We are light in the Lord. The light of Christ shines through the lives of every believer like a prism, becoming a beacon of light in the midst of darkness. 
And as Christ's light shines through your life, Christ is impacting and touching the lives of others. And God has given you these providential relationships, believer, so that as you walk in light of the Lord, the presence of Christ in you makes the decisive difference in your life and shines through your life in order to impact the lives of others. And so the fruit of our lives is to be good and right and true. Good in that we reflect the generosity of God. We shine God's goodness in every conversation, in every interaction, in every right action. And it's to be right in that we reflect the very character and integrity of God in our dealings with God and man. And it's to be true. No falsehood, no deception in the lives of the believer. Believer, are you known in these ways? It's good and right and true. So that as children of light, we walk. We walk in the good works which God has prepared that we would walk in. Right? He prepared them beforehand. Ephesians 2.10. So church, it's time that we begin seeing, and prayerfully we already do, but we see it in, in, in greater ways, the relationships God has given us as part of the work that he has given us to do. As the light of Christ just shines through us as a prism reflecting the light of his glory. And get this, by doing this, verse 10 says, we will discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We must examine and evaluate the issues of our day from a biblical worldview. And this will teach us to discern and to determine the right course of action. Romans 12, 2 is a familiar verse. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but test everything and hold fast what is good. Church, if we're to shine as children of light, then we must live accordingly. And our way will be determined by God's word and not the culture in which we live. Not only will our lives produce the fruit of light, that which is good and right and true. But here's what will happen. Our lives will expose the fruit of darkness. See the wonderful truth of God's work, God's word at work in and through the lives of his people. Verses 11 through 14 show us this. To be clear, we're not called to be separatist and adopt a pharisaical approach in relating to the world. Instead, by refusing to adopt the ways of darkness, we are to refract the light of Christ through the prisms of our lives into the darkness of the world. And when we do this, the fruit of light in us will expose the fruit of darkness by shining goodness and righteousness and truth into those providential relationships. We expose the wickedness of darkness. We do that by living holy lives. Because living a holy life will expose evil for what it is. Evil. So here's what it means. It means that we reach out to those who are addicted to pornography. We seek to reconcile those who are caught in adultery. We demonstrate healthy marriages in our homes and a healthy sexual ethic in our marriages. 
We demonstrate that to those who are in bondage to sexual immorality. We must be willing to dialogue with members of the LGBT community about God's sexual ethic. It means that we don't hate, we love. We don't demean, we befriend. We don't gossip, we speak truthfully. And we stand on the truth of God's Word and we demonstrate it with our holy lives. With our holy marriages. With discipleship of our children as we teach them these truths of God's Word. We teach them why the assaults of the culture are false and are profane in God's eyes. And why it can threaten even our salvation. Or at least our security. Verse 12, Paul says that the shameful sexual sins committed in secret are too disturbing to even mention. So rather than give voice to what they all know to be the case, the answer is for believers to let their light shine, exposing their wickedness with a holy life. And get this in verse 14. Here's the process by which darkness becomes light. By which the darkness is transformed into light. When the believer is careful to walk as a child of light, they'll guard their actions, we'll guard our speech, we'll guard our attitude, and we'll guard our salvation so that we will shine in the darkness and produce the fruit of light. And the Holy Spirit of God, here's how He works, the Holy Spirit of God will then work to transform the darkness into light. For He says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here's the image of resurrection. The resurrection hope of Christ will shine in the life of those who are in darkness and bring them to salvation. Bring them to light. I want to submit to you that this comes through building relationships with those who are sick in sin, with those who are caught up in darkness and not participating, not partnering with them, right? but living a holy life as a demonstration of God's grace in your life with thankfulness and in love and truth, sharing the hope of the gospel with others. God has called the church to live missionally in a pagan land. So church, let us be faithful to walk as children of light. Let us be faithful to shine the light of Christ into the darkness. You see, the battlefront's on two lines, right? First, internally. And if you're one who struggles with sexual immorality in some way, this morning I invite you to repent before the Lord. Repent of your sin before Him and ask God to cleanse you and to purify your life. Find accountability partners or one partner, an accountability partner who will listen to you, who will pray for you, who will hold you up and hold you accountable and not walking in the way of sin. It's an internal battle and it's an external battle living in the world. Church, our lives are the light that is to shine in the darkness. How might God want to use you to shine the light of Christ into the darkness of this world? How might Christ use Crosspoint to shine the light of Christ into the darkness of the surrounding community of this campus? Into the surrounding communities that we live in? I want to exhort us, church, this morning as we close to consider how the Lord is speaking to us and challenging us from His Word. Are we walking as children of light? Are we shining as children of light in the midst of darkness? I pray that we are.
Are we struggling with sexual immorality? Let us repent. Are we befriending those who need the hope of Christ? Let us seek to do that by the Holy Spirit's prompting and leading. You respond this morning as the Lord leads and prepare your heart as we come to celebrate the Lord's table this morning. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for the gracious gift that you have given us in our salvation. And we thank you for the good gift that you have given us in marriage. In your sexual ethic, in the hope of the gospel. We thank you that you desire to use us as a light to the nations. And we pray, Father, that you would teach us how to faithfully walk as children of light. And then empower us to shine as children of light in the midst of darkness. God, this is our desire as your people. And it's your call on our lives. So strengthen us, Lord, to be a people who walk faithfully after you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?